Kia ora. welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. Um, my name's Abby, I'm a student at Victoria University of Wellington, I'm in my third year. Um, I actually spent two weeks of February in self-isolation when I came back from a university exchange in China. I'm pretty sure that I've made an indent on my mattress from spending so much time just sitting on my bed. Kia ora, Abby. Well, it's great to hear from you, and I do hope you've been able to get out a bit more now that we've moved to Level 3. I'm Indira Stewart. Welcome to the Coronavirus Podcast. Later this episode, our producer Sonia Sly looks at what the lockdown has meant for people with obsessive-compulsive disorder. But first, let's get to the headlines. We are now two days running with zero new cases of COVID-19. Uh, In addition, one case that was previously uh, categorised as a probable case has uh, been changed and is now defined as not a case. So our overall total of confirmed and probable case, uh, cases decreases by 1 to 1,486. So I guess we could technically say we had negative 1 cases yesterday. Well, no matter the number, both Director-General Ashley Bloomfield and the Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern repeated that we won't know if the shift to Level 3 has caused a spike in new infections until the end of the week. Obviously, having zero new cases of COVID-19 to report for a second day in a row is very encouraging, and all New Zealanders should feel pleased with their efforts. I certainly do. Of course, we must stick to the plan. The worst thing we could do now is celebrate success early, before the full-time whistle blows, and jeopardise the gains we have made. Last episode, we mentioned a High Court ruling which overrode the Ministry of Health's decision not to grant an exemption from quarantine for a man who had travelled from the UK to visit his dying father. Now, Dr Bloomfield says the Ministry is carrying out a review to make sure there aren't any similar cases. It won't be the same team doing that review of those cases, but they are being done by a separate team that is in the National Crisis Management Centre, which considers all those requests for exemption uh, for domestic travel. The review started today. I have asked for it to be completed as soon as possible this week. Jacinda Ardern spent yesterday morning in a video conference meeting with the Australian National Cabinet, a special group made up of both state and federal leaders set up to respond to COVID-19. Ms Ardern says it's the first time a New Zealand Prime Minister has attended such a meeting since World War II. The National Cabinet tends to meet in times of national crisis, uh, but obviously is infrequent. The last New Zealand Prime Minister to participate in such a meeting was Peter Fraser, who attended various meetings of Australia's uh, War Cabinet. Speaking at his own press conference, Australian Prime Minister Scott Morrison announced an agreement to set up a special travel zone across the Tasman as soon as it is safe to do so. At some point, um, both Australia and New Zealand will start connecting with the rest of the world again. And the most obvious place for that to start is between Australia and New Zealand. And uh, we could see that happening, but it's not something that's about to happen next week or anything like that. Um, It is something that will better sit Uh, alongside when we're seeing Australians travel from Melbourne to Cairns um, at that, about that time, I would expect uh, everything being equal that we'd be able to you know, fly from Melbourne to Auckland or to Christchurch or things like that. Ms Ardern says there'll be huge economic benefits to reopening travel with Australia. Australians and New Zealanders travel across the ditch more than they do anywhere else. 
New Zealand is Australia's second largest source of tourists after China, with 1.2 million visitors last year and 1.6 million Aussies visited us. So we both stand to benefit from getting travel up and running again. We're also Australia's largest export market by number of exporting firms. 18,500 Aussie businesses trade with New Zealand, meaning we're especially critical for Australian SMEs. So the case for increasing economic relations uh, when safe is clear. At the Epidemic Response Committee yesterday, the focus was on education. The principal of Auckland Grammar School, Tim O'Connor, had harsh words for the ministry. Not only has there been no visible strategy communicated to secondary principals, there has been no position of advocacy for secondary education, other than perhaps the squawks of frustrated principals uh, who have had the courage to speak up. Then we get reactions. To be frank, colloquially, uh, it's been a shambles. Well, speaking to RNZ's Checkpoint programme, the principal of Massey School, Glenn Dennis, said schools needed to urgently reopen for at least some Year 12 and 13 students. Trust me that I know exactly which kids to bring back to my school, our 12s and 13s. But if I tell you this, it's like dog years. Every week that we lose at Massey, we're a low decile school, our community don't have a lot of money, it's like I lose seven weeks of learning. And our farm, our kids have worked hard to get into year 12 and 13, they've worked their socks off, and many of them are disengaged. We don't have the devices, I mean that's, I mean, we asked for 491, we've got 83, and I don't know who's got them. You know, it's just been, that's been shambolic. But we've got kids at home that are not learning. They are, they're not engaging. Some kids have got jobs. Um, some kids won't return to school because mum's lost their job. That's, and I understand that they've got to do some work. But we need our, our kids back. And if anyone says to you that actually this is the way of the future, Lord help us, please not let that be true. Because nothing will replace Kanawhi to Kanawhi, eye to eye with the teacher. Finally, RNZ has received leaked documents which show the Ministry of Social Development's preparations for the economic fallout of COVID-19. In part, they say... MSD is preparing for an increase of approximately 300,000 applications for benefits. This is primarily due to job loss from COVID-19. 300,000 more applicants would double the current number of people on benefits. In response to that leaked document... MSD's Deputy Chief Executive Viv Rickard said the Ministry's central planning scenario was for an increase of 200,000 by January 2021. But she acknowledged that some Treasury scenarios put that figure as high as 288,000. Obsessive Compulsive Disorder, otherwise known as OCD, it's a mental disorder where people feel compelled to complete certain routines over and over. Well, one of the most common compulsions is hand washing. And that might seem like a good thing in the middle of a global pandemic, but as our producer Sonia Sly explains, the reality for OCD sufferers is very different. Spread out under my dining room table. I'm about five to seven years old. I'm trying to align the chair legs with the table legs. And the minute anybody moves a chair, I feel incredibly stressed out. And when I say stressed out, I mean it creates an incredibly tight knot in the middle of my chest. I feel like I almost can't breathe. I do this on a daily basis. 
the reason I want to tell you this is because as soon as the lockdown kicked into place, one of the first things that crossed my mind was a potential spike in cases of obsessive compulsive disorder. So I couldn't help but wonder how people with OCD are coping at this time. Is it escalating their patterns of behaviour? And what are they doing about it? I've gone through periods of of saying different things, but at the moment, yeah, I do I do say I, I suffer from it. This is Sam. He's in his early 20s, and he developed OCD when he was about 13 or 14 years old. I mean, even talking about it now, it really does increase my stress and my anxiety. You know, I feel shaky. My breath is quite quick. My heart races. You know, my head feels very, very heavy. The events that I sort of think about when I was diagnosed with OCD. Back in 2009, when the swine flu epidemic was, was happening, I went to a museum in Christchurch with my father, and it was an interactive museum. And then afterwards, my dad told me to sanitize my hands and sanitize my phone. And so I thought, oh, that sounds fair enough because of what's happening. From about there until the end of 2010, I had a very, very slow progression of, of symptoms increase. I was petrified that I was getting contaminated by other people's saliva. It was going from no symptoms at all to fe- feeling uncomfortable that someone spat on me or something like that, or seeing someone lick their fingers and touch something I wanted to use. And it got to the point where I was at school and I was you know, running to the bathroom to wash my hands and that kind of thing. The beginning of 2011 is when it really turned into a, a serious issue that was impacting my life. There are so many unknowns at the moment, which is also like another issue which escalates that anxiety. At a one to 10, how high is your anxiety right now? I'm sitting at about a nine. Usually my day-to-day life, I'm sitting at a, a steady six to seven, depending on the day. It is such a hidden illness and a lot of those rituals do take place in the home. Like, what does that mean for you? It's really dangerous for, for me because now that I'm in isolation and I'm in my safe space, my nice clean house where nothing goes wrong, I'm not being exposed to the same level as I was being exposed pre-COVID-19. So now instead of going out and facing my exposures head on and dealing with them, I'm not going to recover from OCD in a condition like this. I need to be exposed to, to difficult things in order to to move on from this. COVID-19 is not something I'm worried about contracting, but what is really concerning me is the stories about people that have wiped off a shelf of hand sanitizers. Everything that we've built our life around at the moment, we've just lost. I'm having to, to live life slightly differently. I'm having to not touch some things that I would deem to be contaminated so I can ration what I've got. You know, that's not a good way to, to treat my OCD. It's what we call flooding when something like this happens where you no longer can action your compulsions where you just stop. There is evidence that it's a highly effective way to treat OCD, but it's also an incredibly distressing way to do it. And the biggest concern, OCD just loves to thrive off uncertainty that we're feeling. It tells me I need to be in control so I know I can handle what's going to happen. The thing people need to be aware of with OCD is that It is a real disorder. It's incredibly severe in a lot of cases and it does require a medical diagnosis. So this is as real as schizophrenia or bipolar. I mean, I consider myself very well now, um, but I've noticed a spike in my anxiety. Meet Genevieve Mora. Anxiety physically feels like I often feel it in my stomach. I often relate it to kind of like when you're on a roller coaster and your stomach drops, or also butterflies, jittery in some aspects as well. Genevieve has recovered from OCD 
and these days she's an advocate for removing stigma around mental illness through a website called Voices of Hope. I think it's normal for people to be feeling somewhat anxious at this time, but for people with obsessive compulsive disorder, it's almost gone to a new level because of that lack of control. And also um, for those that struggle with the contamination OCD or the, you know, the fear of dying OCD, there's so many different types of OCD out there. Um, and that thought and fear becomes even more vivid and, and rampant at this time. Now, as Genevieve mentioned, there are different types of OCD. And like me... Genevieve was a checker. She also developed her OCD as a child. One day, she saw something on TV. It's quite a graphic piece about a murder that had taken place and therefore everything I did was to protect myself from not being that victim and started off as me checking. Before I went to bed, I'd check under my bed and I'd check my cupboards and I'd check my curtains just to make sure no boogeyman was in my room. And as OCD works, you know, the more you engage in these behaviours, the more ingrained they become. And so it started being that I had to do everything an even number of times. I'd read a magazine page four times. I'd have to check in on my parents four times. I used to get really bad migraines. So I'd do or engage in these behaviours to stop myself from getting a migraine or to protect my family from not getting killed. And you know that logically opening a door four times isn't going to be the difference between your parents dying or not. But the feeling is so real that you just give in to that urge anyway. I hid my um, behaviours. You don't want other people to see you you engaging this way. And so for me, I'd spend a lot of time in the bathroom making sure that I got all my rituals and compulsions done. My parents started to notice when I was in the bathroom a lot more that something more was happening in there. I came out of the bathroom one day just completely exhausted and I said to mum, I have OCD. And I don't think I really understood at that point what it was. Jen's OCD morphed into an eating disorder. So she's well aware of how anxiety can manifest in different forms. I had really bad obsessive compulsive disorder and, and that gave me a sense of control for only so long. Well, I thought it did, so I engaged in, you know, restricting my food intake. By that point, I was I was very out of control and I think situations like this where we have no control over them just adds to that anxiety. So, yeah, I guess my fear for people with OCD right now is that they are really struggling and I think it's okay to remember that it's okay to be struggling at this point. There is a lot going on externally, but just to really try and focus and, and stay in treatment can't say absolutely there is a rise in cases. What we do know, however, is there has been a rise in community anxiety. Tammy Allen is the CEO of Changing Minds New Zealand. And anxiety is obviously part of OCD or the reason why people have obsessive thoughts that might lead to compulsions. Now the problem of tracking people with OCD is that it's such a hidden experience. Most people conduct their social activities and daily routines without anyone ever suspecting. But that's also what makes it dangerous. We do know that 80% of New Zealanders either themselves or know someone very close to them that experiences mental distress. I guess a lot of people, if they do know already about OCD, one of the first things they think about is obsessive handwashing, but there are other types of behavioural patterns, so checking, contamination, mental contamination, hoarding, and having intrusive thoughts. So probably too simplified to kind of say that there might be a rise in cases that could be specific to contamination, which you think because OCD can manifest in a number of ways just as a result of stress and distress. Yes, that's right. I wouldn't be specific in um, working out, you know, who might be more susceptible or what types of OCD we might see a rise in. What I think it is important for people to understand, though, is that 
OCD doesn't necessarily mean obsessive cleaning or obsessive hand washing, although many people do experience that as the compulsion. The thing about OCD that, that is the distressing part is the obsessive thinking. For some people with OCD, the obsessive thinking is all that they get and the compulsions may or may not come or may or may not be so severe. But the distressing part of it is the obsessive thinking behind those actions that might lead to those compulsions. But those compulsions might be very different for anyone experiencing it. Many people feel really embarrassed by this, but we've got to remember in those times that although over-ritualising of behaviours might not be what many people do, there are points in our life where those type of behaviours are are part of being normal and being human. That's part of our brain's learning in how to keep ourselves safe. So sometimes we tip over the edge and our brain doesn't understand the difference between keeping ourselves safe and going a bit overboard. So we've got to remember that all of these things, even if they feel really embarrassing to talk about, they're actually normal human things to go through. For many people with obsessive thoughts, it becomes distressing because of the, the rituals that come along with it. But if you think of that being a strength, being able to ritualise your day in a way that's really healthy, the guidelines say washing my hands for 20 seconds. So I'm only going to wash my hands for 20 seconds. And then set up a routine for the day and make that the obsession. Change the obsessive nature into a strength and be kind and gentle to yourself. I mean, obviously, anxiety is sort of increasing globally at this time. But do you think that a focus on hand washing and sanitising and kind of cleaning everything is likely to trigger ongoing issues for people later? So that even if it's kind of latent right now, as time goes on, that people might start to realise that they actually develop symptoms of OCD? There's a lot of self-talk that has to happen with all of us at this time. We've tolerated through our lives uncertainty and unknowns in many parts of our lives. What we can control is our actions in this moment and that's where the guidelines of social distancing is probably the most important thing for us to be keeping on top of right now. But actually, we have almost no control over the results of those actions so accepting that we have a lack of control can be empowering in and of itself. We just need to keep telling ourselves that we can handle this, we can handle being anxious, that it's okay to feel anxious in this moment, that it's normal. Clearly one would hope or think that it's important to get treated early or to be able to identify symptoms. So what would symptoms look like in the early stages and what should people do if they think they're developing symptoms? They can be very different for everyone. And what I don't want listeners to do is to start self-diagnosing or diagnosing others. If you are worried, there are some amazing resources out there. OCD.org.nz has some great resources around thoughts, what it is, how you can help someone with OCD. Anxiety in New Zealand has some excellent resources out there right now specifically around coronavirus and how to cope. Mental Health Foundation have some great resources and FAQs around OCD. There's depression.org.nz. Then there's some international places like the International OCD Foundation has some great ideas about how to cope with people that have OCD or worried that they have OCD around this particular lockdown phase. 
There's lots of places where people can go if they're worried, but I would really warn people against self-diagnosing. That was our producer, Sonia Slime. And that's all from us this episode. Please, if you haven't already, jump on RNZ's Vox Pop app and let us know what you've been up to. We'd love to hear from you. Kia ho maru kia kaha, mā te wā. The Coronavirus Podcast is presented by me and Dara Stewart. It's produced by William Ray, Jesse Chang, Sonia Sly and Katie Gossett. Our sound engineer is Adrian Holley and the executive producer is Tim Watkin. You can subscribe to the Coronavirus Podcast anywhere and it's free. Just go to the podcast and series page at rnz.co.nz. Thank you.